0: You have to be very judicious in your interactions with things that deliver pleasure. So the key is to Mm. take this dopamine system and set it up for you to be able to be motivated and focused. And the way to do that is... Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro
1: athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome to this special masterclass. We brought some of the top experts in the world to help you unlock the power of your life through this specific theme today. It's going to be powerful, so let's go ahead and dive in. You mentioned dopamine a little bit. Can you talk about dopamine focus and motivation and how to manage our dopamine hits? Because it seems like every 30 seconds we're getting dopamine now, whether it's drinking coffee, having candy, social media, email pings, dings on the watches, whatever it is, it's a dopamine overload, it feels like. Yes. So how do we stay motivated and
0: manage dopamine at the same time? Yeah, great question. Dopamine is the molecule of motivation. The molecule of motivation. Absolutely. I mean, for years and years, people thought dopamine was about pleasure, but dopamine is mainly about craving and motivation and drive. Okay. There's a simple experiment that illustrates that, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't first mention uh, two excellent resources uh, for people that want to learn a lot about dopamine. Uh, These would be perhaps interesting people for you to talk to directly. Uh, The first is a book called The Molecule of More, which is all about dopamine. Uh, the author is Lieberman. I, pers- I don't know him personally, but I love the book. I wish I had written it. Uh, the second is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And the author there is Anna Lemke, L-E-M-K-E. Uh, she's a medical doctor and psychiatrist and runs the Dual Diagnosis Addiction Clinic at Stanford School mm-hmm, of Medicine. Mm-hmm. She's a colleague. I, I consider her a friend, and she is um, world-class, second to none in all things dopamine as it relates wow. to addiction. So wonderful reads. Um and so a lot of what I'm going to talk about is, go, is kind of paraphrasing elements from their book, so I wanna be clear. Um, so here's the experiment. Take two rats, uh, Yeah. you give them a lever they can press, and they can get food out of that lever. They can get um, heat if the, their cage is cold. They can get all sorts of things that are great for a rat, um, including uh, a mate to mate with if they press this lever. Both rats press the lever just fine. Now you take away dopamine from one of those rats. You can actually do that by um, using a a, a toxin that can kill off all the dopamine neurons. Okay. There's an equivalent experiment that's been done in humans, but it was a naturally occurring death of these, of these dopamine neurons, much in the same way that Parkinson's destroys Uh dopamine neurons. What you find is that both rats or both people still Experience pleasure from food, from sex, from warmth when they're cold, from cool when they're too warm, etc. However, if you take that rat, both rats, and you move them one rat length away from the lever, so they have to just do a little bit of work, a little bit of work in order to press the lever, or you take a human who has no dopamine neurons or very little dopamine, and you make the pleasureful thing a little bit more challenging to get to. The ones with no dopamine do not pursue pleasure at all. Mm. That's just one example of what now are hundreds of examples in the neuroscience literature showing that dopamine is the molecule of pursuit, craving, motivation, drive, you know, pick your favorite word. So dopamine is a good thing in motivation. In, provided it's in proper levels. Right. Yes, okay. that's right. Okay. If your dopamine is depleted, you will feel not motivated. Now there's a double-edged sword here because many things, as you mentioned accurately, trigger dopamine release. Look, seeing a positive comment, a compliment, food, the more palatable of food, a really tasty chip mm. compared to a slice of a potato that's, that's baked right. but doesn't have anything on it, one truly releases more dopamine than the other. Right. I could list off a number of things, but we have a baseline level of dopamine. Uh, nicotine, for instance, increases that by about 50%. Gives you more dopamine. Uh, more do- Dopamine is released. You have two major dopamine pathways in the brain. There's one related to movement, one related to reward. It's broadly speaking, there are others, mm-hmm. but broadly speaking, the so-called mesolimbic reward pathway. And then the other one, we, we don't have to throw out names. But <laughs> we'll just confuse people. But so you have these reward pathways and dopamine is involved in movement. So nicotine, about a 50% increase. Cocaine, 100% increase, wow. a double in- Methamphetamine, 1,000 or even 1,000-fold on. oh, increase. Holy so cow. Huge increase in dopamine. That's why it's so addictive. So addictive. But what happens after that big dopamine increase is that the do- baseline levels of dopamine go below what they were before how low that dope drop is below baseline is proportional to how big the increase was before
1: that's why it's so addictive to stay on these
0: things that's right well and that's why if you're getting lots of little dopamine hits from things as we call them you're going to feel kind of depressed and those things don't feel as rewarding anymore Mm -hmm. okay now eventually the system can reset if you don't indulge let me give an example this is a true story example i i out of respect for the individual i don't want to reveal his name but uh in talking about dopamine, someone I know um, has a child. Um, the kid is in his 20s. He was a decent student, excellent athlete, really charming, nice kid. Yeah. I've known him since he was little. And he reached a point where his friends had graduated high, high school. He went to community college and he kind of fizzed out of that. He wasn't into that. You know, this resonated with my earlier story. <laughs> he was working a job, but then he wasn't feeling like working. And he was convinced he had ADHD and he was depressed and he started taking off down the path of medication, oh, which yeah. by the way, have helped many, many people. Most of the medications for ADHD, by the way, we are drugs that increase dopamine oh. because dopamine increases focus, it increases motivation, and it increases drive, essentially, the willingness to get into action in pursuit of goals, just like the, the rats that have dopamine or the humans that have dopamine pursue, the ones that have depleted dopamine do not. So this guy, who is a real story, uh, was struggling in a major way. So about three months ago, he was watching a lot of videos online. He was texting a lot. He's mainly playing video games, video games, video games, video games. But he wasn't really enjoying them as much anymore. Mm. And one thing you see with people with ADHD is they actually can focus if they're really interested in something. Why? Because their dopamine levels are elevated and they're able to focus he heard about the dopamine system and Anna's work. And I talked to him and he decided to do what some people call dopamine fast, but for him that meant no video games. And he did two weeks of no screens, which at first I think was agonizing for him. Oh my gosh. It's now three months later. It's a little less than three months later. I actually talked to his parent today, working full time off all ADHD meds. Hmm. Has a girlfriend, I don't know if that's related or not, probably because he's got his life together a little bit more, which is an yeah. attractive feature, yeah. as opposed to someone who's, you know, spiraling out, doing nothing, living at home, which frankly is an unattractive feature, regardless of, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Yeah. He's very focused on his work. He's excited by things, and he allows himself a short period of time each day where he plays video games and he enjoys them again like never before. Mm. There is a simple explanation for this, which is that his dopamine system is reset. He's, when you're constantly pursuing things, eating highly palatable foods, engaging in very stimulating anything, any behavior that's very stimulating, there's a drop below baseline and it takes an increasingly great stimulus, high threshold stimulus in order to excite you. So if people are feeling bored, unmotivated, unstimulated, most of the time it's because they are overindulging in Mm. things that keep pounding this dopamine system but the but the baseline of dopamine is going down 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 now there are a few hacks that can actually help and anna talks about some of these in in her book the main thing is to if you are if someone is engaging in any truly addictive behavior or substance or a behavior that just doesn't Feel like it's that great, but you're finding yourself doing it compulsively. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, what are some examples? Texting, make? Instagram. I limit my Instagram time to two hours per day, which itself just sounds like a lot. I'm a grown adult, <laughs> and I well, spend two hours on it, but I, I do a lot of work. Then, yeah, right. I'm trying to there. put out content that's educational. You're creating. But sometimes I think lives, to myself, yeah. like, I'm a grown man. I'm spending two hours a day on Instagram. Well, that's a lot of where we spend our time now. Yeah. But if you allow yourself four hours a day on social media, you'll probably find that it's. You're scrolling, you're not even sure what you're looking for. Like, what am I doing? I just wasted this time. Exactly. And what you're looking for is something to jolt that baseline. So, you want to limit those behaviors, or in some cases, if it gets really severe, like it was for this individual, you want to eliminate
1: completely for 30, 60 days. Ideally,
0: it's 30 days. Now, this is the same prescriptive that they give alcoholics, heroin addicts, et cetera. But some of those drugs, of course, have actual withdrawal symptoms that can be problematic. Uh, You know, these days I'm not a pot smoker. I've never, I've never liked drugs or alcohol. I kind of lucked out that way. But um, you know, there's, and I'm not trying to uh, demonize. I'm not passing judgment. But you know, cannabis, for instance, is pretty prominent use, and a lot, and a lot of people, the idea of 30 days without that is, I think, they probably say they could do it, but it would be very challenging for Mm -hmm. them. But, and I'm not here to tell people what to do, right? Then there's about drugs, alcohol, or anything. But the idea is 30 days of no interaction with that thing, person, behavior, mm. I mean, all sorts of things so that you can enjoy other things. I, yes. I like to say, you know, addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. And if I may, enlightenment is a progressive expansion of the things that bring you pleasure. Right. All of that hinges on this dopamine system. So you have to be very judicious in your interactions with things that deliver pleasure, or else they will soon not deliver pleasure and they will diminish your pleasure for everything else that you interact mm-hmm. with. So the way to think about this is wow. just to set up constraints. And as I'm stealing Anna's words left and right, forgive me Anna. she has many more important things to <laughs> say, and she says them much more eloquently than I, but she says, you know, we don't give our kids chocolate cake for breakfast, mm-hmm. but we, we sort of understand that dessert comes at a certain time of day and after completing certain things. But we, for some reason, we just allow ourselves to just dive into this immense dopamine sensory landscape of social media. Because social media isn't just comments. You and me say, oh, like Lewis put something up. There's that, that stuff's great. But then there's also a lot of violent stuff, politically intense stuff. There's a lot of friction, there's a lot of joy. Yeah. I mean, you're essentially going to the dopamine carnival. And, right. <laughs> and so you need to restrict the amount of time. Yes. And especially if you're somebody who wants to get work done and your work is not the, the you know, social media and I'm pointing at social media, but this could be anything, uh, anything that you enjoy F- uh, food. For instance, you don't want to overindulge in highly palatable foods. It's just bad for us. We know this for a number of reasons. So the key is to mm. take this dopamine system and set it up for you to be able to be motivated and focused. And the way to do that is to make the experiences around that thing that you want to be motivated to do, a little less or a lot less exciting. What this, do you mean? This is why I don't listen to music these days or check text messages while I'm in the gym. And sometimes I'll listen to a book or a podcast, but I really try and just, be, just work out, including while I'm running. Why? Because these days we are layering in dopamine. We're getting dopamine from the energy drink we're, we're drinking Okay. Big increase in dopamine. I forget the actual numbers, but I think it's 1.8 times increase. And some of them have L-tyrosine, which is a dopamine precursor. Mm. Some of them have caffeine, which also increases dopamine and upregulates dopamine receptors. So you're getting it from the energy drink, plus it's the video game you're playing. Plus you're with your friends. It's just a dopamine soup, which sounds great, except that other things. That you do afterwards are going to seem understimulating, mm. and you're going to think I can't focus on this. Yeah. So I also kind of wonder whether or not you were having trouble focusing in your class because the Canelo fight was that awesome. It was insane. It, it was, was amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm a, I am a boxing fan. It was and, crazy. And he, if you had to like build a boxer, you'd build him like that. Just his incredible. head, the, his shape. The, yeah, the right hook.
1: And it was just like, like the roar of the crowd and the, just the energy. It was
0: amazing, man. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah, great. There's a there's a beautiful story unfolding there with with him. But yes. so that could be it too. You know, there's a kind of a letdown. And so I think it's it may be helpful for people to understand mm. that the postpartum depression that people feel after a big celebration is okay, real. That's real. And if you just wait a little while, that system will reset. You don't mm-hmm. have to necessarily wait thirty days, but if you just had a great party, you should expect that there'll be a long tale of joy, but then you might feel a little low a little underwhelmed so true man and if you're going to sit down and try and do work and you're finding yourself not that focused you might want to think about some of the behaviors that led up to that work Mm -hmm. so i really try to get into my work in a focused way by making the the period right before it's a little boring frankly going outside getting some sunlight drinking my mate it sounds like a pretty boring life right it's not like blasting a bunch of music and getting really amped up Mm -hmm. but I'm able to get a nice peak of dopamine during that workout, And I think that's a functional dopamine increase. And then afterwards, yes, indeed, there's a drop. Now there's some other hacks that mm-hmm. um, Anna's talked about. And again, we can look to our friend, Wim Hof. Other people have done this, although this was happening long before Wim. There's a beautiful study published in the European Journal of Physiology showing that getting into cold water, so this could be cold shower, could be ice bath, could be any number of different plunge type things or an ocean or whatever that people want to use for anywhere from three to six minutes, creates a 2.5 X increase in dopamine that lasts many hours. So it's a unique stimulus because it's not like a spike Ah. and then it drops. It's like a long arc increasing your baseline dopamine, increases alertness, Mm. feelings of well-being some, they did blood draws in this study. So these are real data, you know, they weren't, yes. um, it wasn't conjecture, they really know this. And there are some cases of people who were full blown addicts or people who are struggling with ADHD, who start doing regular cold water exposure, you know, three to six times a week, three to six minutes at a time, and discover that, wow, they actually can focus because they're getting that dopamine increase. Wow. Yeah. This stuff is fascinating, man. It's 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 really That's interesting. I think that to me, because the dopamine, you know, coming up in neuroscience, I've been in the game a long time now, almost, you know, gosh, almost 30 years. But um, dopamine was always thought of as pleasure. But it's it's confusing because it's, it's associated with pleasure, but it's not the actual experience of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And immediately after sex, immediately after any powerful experience experience that's very pleasurable dopamine system crashes Cross. down yeah what happens in the body when dopamine crashes ah uh, well there's an interesting thing that happens because uh, there's a hormone called prolactin which is actually involved in milk letdown for for nursing but is also mm. in, uh, increased in both men and women in anticipation of childbirth this is actually responsible for the so-called dad bod Prolactin <laughs> lays down body fat stores, wow. tends to make people a little more sedentary. And this has been shown in humans and in animals. It tends to reduce libido and sex drive. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about m- dopamine as a currency of motivation that biology has used for, for hundreds of thousands yes. of years. So you well, know whether or not you know, we, we think about currencies like dollars or euros or Bitcoins or Ethereum, all of those actually relate to dopamine. They're all dopamine is the fundamental currency that we're all working for. And dopamine has this quality of making us focused on things outside our immediate experience. This is why people are on cocaine or methamphetamine, which is a really extreme version of, of dopamine increase. They tend to be all about plans and action. They're not sitting there thinking about how wonderful they feel in their own body. Mm. Whereas drugs like cannabis and, uh, psilocybin and drugs, these are not drugs. I, recommend people use recreationally. I, I, I'm not passing judgment, but I just want to be clear about what I'm saying and not saying that any drugs that increase serotonin tend to make people kind of still focused on their internal landscape, their thinking, mm-hmm. It's kind of an internal reflection right. thing. So the serotonin system and the dopamine system are kind of antagonistic to one another. And the prolactin system is associated with the serotonin system. So prolactin is kind of about, it's a, it's a mellowing out. Interesting. And, um, there, Uh, just to to nail the the point, there are many people in the world who suffer from schizophrenia, 1% of the world's population, a huge number, a very sad thing, psychosis, hearing things, et cetera. And most of the drugs designed to treat schizophrenic psychosis are drugs that reduce dopamine.
1: And Mm. oftentimes you'll
0: see people on the street who are taking these drugs and they'll be writhing like this with their face Sometimes men will have gynecomastia, they'll have breast development, because these drugs block dopamine, increase prolactin, and disrupt the motor pathways that are associated with movement. Wow! I say this for two reasons. One is it illustrates the relationship between prolactin, dopamine, movement, et cetera. But the other is to hopefully uh, invoke a little bit of empathy for people that oftentimes we will see people who, if they're shouting and acting crazy, that's probably an unmedicated person. Okay. Uh, who's bipolar or has schizophrenia. But if you see someone in their catatonic or they are writhing and acting very strange, that's a person who's, um, we don't know for sure, but very likely is actively trying to treat their own psychosis mm. to eliminate the voices and wow. things of that sort. So trying I say that out, because yeah. I, you know, I, I we have a big homeless population issue mm-hmm. in California and elsewhere too. And oftentimes we see people acting crazy and we think, oh, they're, you know, uh, we make this disparaging judgment and everyone's prone to doing it of course, but they're crazy. But oftentimes that those crazy movements and the things they're doing are the reflection of drugs that block the dopamine system. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. I, I don't mean to make it dark, but I think right. that there is a, you know, 1% of the world's population is a huge number That's a lot and people. a lot of people suffering from these things.
1: Is there a way to create effortlessness when you also need to work hard and be Diligent in your practice and all these things, or do we not have to work hard and it can be effortless in accomplishing what we want?
2: Yeah. Well, look. I mean, to to me, uh, essentialism is about was about rethinking prioritization, uh-huh. what really matters, and figuring out what is essential. Mm-hmm. Effortless is a cousin to that, and that's about rethinking <laughs> simplification,
1: uh-huh.
2: which is that. Sometimes we just make getting great results, breaking through to the next level harder than it needs to be. Yeah. So it's not saying, hey, you should never work and you should never work hard and you should never put an effort. I I believe that you're supposed to put an effort. The point is, if you can't work any harder, you've got to find an easier path.
1: place to start. And it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: And yet in a grind Mm. culture, sometimes people start to get burned out and their answer is push even harder rather right. than think different, right. think smarter, find an alternative route.
1: Rather than take pause, re- reflect, have a better strategy, it's more just go hard, 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 More spend more time, more hours on the thing, yeah. as opposed to reevaluate simplification. Yeah, so that, how, that's can what we, it is. how can we do it uh, more effortlessly in a simplified version, not just hard, push, push, push?
2: And one of the things I think that we can do is, is just well, the, the, the book structure, the model is to have an effortless state, like three concentric circles, effortless state, mm-hmm. effortless action, and effortless results. Right. And that's sort of like three books in one. Each of them can make your life uh, and the results you get easier to get. You want to first remove all the complexity in your mind, in your heart, that makes life more Mm -hmm. frustrating than it ought to be. Mm. Just talking with Tim Ferriss, and I asked him a question about this. I said, look, how much of your mental and emotional energy have you given on stuff that, you know, holding grudges, being angry, Mm. stuff that just got in the way of your success? And he said, look, from age 15 to 30, (laughs) he said probably 60 to 70% of my energy was spent on that.
1: more anger, than being anger. angry at what? Himself, other people, other people. the world, it's, anything.
2: And awful things that happened to him uh-huh. that he was angry about from when he was young. He's talked about this yeah. publicly now, um, of, of abuse that he'd been through and so on. Mm-hmm. But either way, he's making, his life is more burdened than it needs to be because he's spending so much of his cycles on this stuff that isn't actually propelling him forward or his, helping him achieve.
1: This thought process. His energy on those things, right? Yeah, that's Spending right. a lot of that time.
2: That's right. Just, you, you, just your mindset, what you're, what you're processing, how you're feeling, is just burdened.
1: Burning energy.
2: Burning energy <laughs> burning. instead of getting you going forward. Yes. And so, simplifying your state, I think, is a is a huge return on investment. Mm. If you can let go of a grudge, if you can let go of something that you keep on, you know, draining you then you have, there's just more of you mm. on offer. And that's not through grinding effort. Mm. That's through just removing burdens. You don't have to be hauling up the mountain at all.
1: Right.
2: Uh, you know, the Number two area is effortless action.
1: That's effortless state, the first, first area. First one,
2: effortless state. Mm-hmm. So you're simplifying all of your, you're basically all of that clutter that's in your mind. Yeah. So it makes it easier to focus on
1: what matters. Before we get to the, sec- yeah. the second okay. ring, how do people... Learn to let go of grudges. Yeah. <laughs> how do they let go of resentment, anger, frustration about others and about the things they've done? And that's really hard to do. You see my, it's a simple, I just <laughs> let go. Of, <laughs> just get clear minds. But, uh, you know, people have been trying to figure that out for a long time. Yeah. So how do we, how did you learn how to do that?
2: Well, well one of the things that I've learned is that specifically on grudges is that we need to learn Like we have to ask an unusual question about grudges Mm. and that is uh, what did we hire the grudge to do? As Clayton Christensen says with any product or service that you have, you you don't, you don't, you don't, no one wants a six, you know, a six uh, inch drill bit. What they want is a six inch hole, right? Yes. There's a reason that you're hiring that product or service. Well, you can do the same with grudges. Every grudge we hold, we hold for a reason. We've hired the grudge to do something for us. Maybe we hire the grudge to make us feel powerful. See, I am, I am one up. I'm above mm. that person. See, see, they did this bad thing. I'm holding on to that. See, I'll show that I'm superior. We hold on to it for a sense of superiority. Or maybe we hold on it because uh, for, for, we like that we get to tell a story of being a victim. Mm. And people go, oh, yes, we get sympathy for doing it. Well, we hire grudges to do certain jobs. And what I think is that if we simply evaluate grudges, like Mm. we say, how are you doing in your job performance for me? Are you actually protecting me? Are you actually making me powerful? Are you actually getting people to build a stronger relationship with me? Or if you evaluate them, and in the book, there's a section specifically, one by one, you can do this, where you, you say, well, is." You actually find, well, actually, it's not making me powerful. It makes me more vulnerable. Uh, it, it makes me vulnerable with everyone because I'm carrying this wound still. and mm-hmm. not letting it heal. Uh, is, it, is it helping me to build relationships? No. If you pay attention, you notice that when you tell these stories, you kind of have to find new people to tell them to because people get bored of it. Right. And so you're not building deeper trust relationships. You're, you're actually kind of wearing them out along the way. And you can go one by one to suddenly discover that this is like a bad employee. We have a mm-hmm. grudge is like you, you've hired them to do this. They aren't doing any of those things. They're using you. Grudges use you. They burn you up. They waste you out. They make you weaker. And so just through this process, you start to find like I'm ready, ready to fire my grudges,
1: mm-hmm.
2: ready to be free of it, so that I can actually recuperate whatever the percentage is, sixty to seventy percent with with him. Right. Maybe it's different for other people. Get all of that back. And we can start putting that into the stuff we really wanted to do in in the first place.
1: Yeah, can you imagine? There's been different stages of my life where I felt like 10 out of 10 Mm -hmm. of positivity, of freedom of my thoughts from Mm -hmm. holding grudges or resentments or angers. And you feel like you're flying. Mm -hmm. And there've been many years of my life, many years, too many years where I've held on to resentment, anger, frustration, a lack of forgiving other people right? where you feel like you're at a six or a seven, maybe you get to an eight for a moment, but then something triggers you and you're back into anger frustration mode. Mm -hmm. And that really pulls me back into feeling tired, exhausted, drained and burnt out. Typically, not from the effort I put into my craft, but in the effort I put into my mind thinking about the things I don't like.
2: Yeah, you've just, you've basically made the case for why effortless state is the first part of the effortless model. Mm. I mean, that's it exactly. Right. You, you used, think of the language you used, you feel like you're flying. Yes. Is that not just another metaphor for effortless? Yeah. I mean, what, what would be more effortless than I'm flying? That's the idea. That's why, even though you would never think of forgiveness as a productivity hack, mm. like maybe no one's ever written that. You know, the productivity hack <laughs> you need oh, true. is to forgive people in your life. And yet what else can you call it if you could get back that much energy that much of your own light and ability and capability. It's the best rebate available. There's a story that I came across in the research that I love of a man who was productive in his community. And then one day he he, he saw what he thought was a piece of string on the ground. And it was a piece of string. He gets it. He's like, oh, I can put that to use. Puts it in his pocket. On that same day in the marketplace, someone else had lost a wallet and lost some money. And they thought that they had seen him pick up the wallet Uh and take it accused him of it publicly there was no way for him to prove his innocence and so the word went out this person has acted dishonestly Mm -hmm. dishonorably and so on now at this point in the story he has a choice he can't prove his innocence but he could have in this moment let go of the accusation of the harsh judgment and he would have suddenly had all that energy back to be able to get back onto, well, what can I do something about? How can I serve? How can I make a contribution? How can I be successful again? But he doesn't. He gets fixated on it. Everywhere he goes, he talks about it. He nurses the grudge. He explains it's a piece of string. Don't you see it was wrong? A piece of string, a piece of string. People started laughing about this guy. All he ever wants to talk about is a piece of string. And it makes him ill And it, on his deathbed. Mm. Final words of the story, you know a little piece of string, a little piece of string. And this is how the story goes. Now that is it's a fictionalized account, but it it illustrates the point of where are you putting your mental energies? Mm-hmm. If we put them on grudges, if we put them on things that have happened we wish they hadn't happened, or even on our own mistakes where we go, I wish I'd been different. And we're beating ourselves up for past mistakes. We're just, we're just putting tons of effort mm-hmm. onto things that will exhaust us and burn us out instead of moving forward to the things that really matter so
1: would you say that the things in our minds will hold us back from an effortless state and getting and getting the actions and the results we want is the things in our mind first
2: yes definitely um, there's, there's a, a little story about that where I was staring at myself um, <clears throat> dressed head to toe in a stormtrooper costume yeah and I mean I'm in a you know I'm in a, in a store of Halloween it's, this is like a this is an expensive suit it's like a movie <laughs> quality stormtrooper outfit. And as I'm staring back at myself in the mirror, like, should I buy this? I'm like, how am I even here? Like, wh- wh- why? For 30 years, without realizing it, I'd had this goal of buying a Stormtrooper costume. Yeah. So when I reflect on it, it goes back to like when Return of the Jedi comes out. And my older brother says, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a movie quality suit? You know, wouldn't that be great? And I'm like this, you know, whatever, 10-year-old kid just amazed by this. Like, yes, that would be cool. Forget about it entirely. But here we are 30 years later, still pursuing that goal. It's still a part of me has Mm. been working on achieving this. Well, no part of me wanted that costume. I'm like, why am I even, what am I even doing here? Let's get out of this. I don't want this costume. And it became like a shorthand. My wife will say to me now, like, if I'm pursuing something that she's like, I don't know, that has a certain vibe about it. She'll be like, is this a stormtrooper? Mm. And I think you can use that for goals that no longer serve you but also for grudges that no longer serve you could be relationships that no longer serve you could be any mental Ooh. clutter, any assumptions that are simply like that they were true to a point, but they don't serve you now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 one of those, one of those stormtroopers, I think is the idea that any problem can be solved by working harder. That alone is a really limiting idea. It'll get you only to here. It won't get you to there. So, It's a good principle as far as it goes, but then we need to invert that question. Mm. Instead of say, how can I work harder? We say, look, is there a more effortless way of doing this? Mm -hmm. And so as you rid your mind of this old paradigm, you open yourself up to a new option, a new question. And suddenly, I mean, I almost think it's almost like magic. There's so many cool options once you're free of the idea that anything worth doing has to be exhaustingly difficult.
1: Yeah. What was the thought process that stuck in your mind the longest, that was the hardest to let go of. That when you let go of it, life became more effortless. Mm. Whether it be in your relationships or your career or whatever it might be. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, one answer to that question is, well, I'll give you one answer though, which is that the work, at what's essential, needs to kind of be hard drudgery and then you've got separate to that play mm. and fun and that those two things are just two different categories yes they don't have to be but we often divide them up and so we we, we just have the fun and the play separate but what if they what if the essential things can be the fun things mm-hmm. what if you can make
1: the the things that used to seem like drudgery into like fun rituals yeah how do you make cleaning your laundry or mopping the floor or cle- yeah. cleaning the toilet, a fun enjoyable experience.
2: Or, which is a specific example in my family, uh, cleaning up after dinner. Yeah. So we, we we have pretty good rituals around the actual mealtime. Like we actually eat together. i got four kids and my wife wow. and I, we, we will do like, you know, uh, we'll do toasts for each other at the end of each day and like what's gone right today. And we have mm-hmm. some good rituals around this, but as soon as the dinner is over, uh, my, my kids are just like gone. They're like, see, they're, they're, on the phone. Like, they disappear. Like they're, they're like ninjas, man. They're just gone. It's like <laughs> so <laughs> silent. And like, where did they all go? Then I have the unenviable task of like, come back and pulling them all back. Where did you all go? And, oh, no, I've got homework on. It's hard to argue with that. Go to the bathroom. Okay, that's hard to argue. And it's just this cat and mouse game to get them back in. So I'm like, okay, how do we make it effortless? And so we, we, we divide up the chores so everyone's got a certain part of it, mm-hmm. right? Many hands make light work, and we trained them on each piece. And I'm like, okay, we're going to set this up. We wrote it all down on a piece of paper where everyone can see it. Okay, ready to start. What happens? Nothing.
1: Chaos. Yeah. It is back <laughs> to the
2: same. They're gone. The next day, they're gone like ninjas again. And it wasn't until my eldest daughter Grace added just a particular kind of music to the occasion, that it became like karaoke. It mm. was like classic Disney tracks. It was, I mean, she's a teenager. She's just turned 18 now. But it's just like sing-along stuff that you can't not sing to, all kinds of music. And it turned it into just like a little party. Yeah. And even now, we'll start to do it. We'll have the same problems as soon as someone puts on the right music. You all do it. You play. And, 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 and it's like that now. In fact, I didn't think people would believe me, but the other day I wasn't even helping them. Music got put on. Everyone's doing it. I grabbed like five seconds of video and put it on Instagram just to like prove like it really is like that now. So the idea is, one of the ideas that's hard to let go of is that is that essential stuff has to be the drudgery, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the important stuff is just hard work. Some things are just hard. And then there's fun stuff and that's play over here, but what if you make it, what if you combine those? What if you make essential stuff enjoyable, well then it becomes, relatively speaking, effortless. And I, and I
1: would add into that and say, if you don't make the essential stuff enjoyable, then you will be burnt out. Yeah. Even if it starts out as like fun, like practice and sports for me, there are many different sports that I played growing up and some of them I burnt out on because it came, started to become a job where it was only like you got to show up to practice, you got to work hard, this is a business mentality now and it kind of lost the idea of having fun. Yeah. When, yeah. when we're playing a game, but it's like the business of the game. Right, And right. You almost have to... So what could start out as really fun could turn into drudgery Right. and what could be like this thing that I don't like could be this incredibly fun experience based on the parameters you create for yourself. I was a truck driver for many months. Um, (laughs) I got paid $250 a week as a truck driver when I was about 22, 23 years old. And I remember being like, this is miserable. (laughs) This was not fun. This was not, you know, it was essential to just pay like for food for the week. It was not like the path of my life. Right. But it was a season of my life. And I remember saying, okay, I have an opportunity here. Like this is going to be happening for many months. I can either be in misery and pain for six hours a day driving a truck. Right. Or I can make the most of it. And I downloaded CD with salsa songs and I started visualizing myself while watching the road but visualizing myself (laughs) salsa dancing because I was learning how to salsa dance at that time. Wow. And so, I would imagine myself doing the moves and, and the dance and the steps and everything and it made the time fly and it made it more enjoyable. Right. I would also sing songs as well and just say like, okay, how can I make this fun? Even if people are looking at me like I'm crazy, singing along to myself. But that made it more enjoyable, where it wasn't like ah, oh, I have to go to work and do this thing. But I had a great time and time flew.
2: I, I love what you're saying, and I, and it really is sort of a lot of what I mean when I say effortless state. Yeah. Is it like which is there's nothing so hard that complaining and whining about it won't make it harder.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: some things in life, once you decide I'm going to do this thing. I'm dealing with this, this is a responsibility that's important to me, I'm taking on. Now you just have to decide,
1: do I wanna do it the hard way or the (laughs) easier way? Yeah, exactly. What happens when we complain? And why do we complain so much?
2: You know, I searched at one point when I was doing this research for like just what are the easiest things to do in the world? Like just off the cuff, like what are the answers? And I remember that one of the first answers that people really agreed on was complaining is the easiest thing to do. Wow. So I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> and, and I took on a little exercise myself with this. And I was like, okay, well, that's not a great state to be in. A complaining state is going to limit my creativity. It's going to make it harder for me to achieve. It's going to be harder for me to attract good talent and all the rest of it. So I said, okay, every time I complain, I'm going to say something I'm grateful for.
1: I read this in the book. I like this strategy.
2: Well, here's a Really what I, good strategy. Well, I like that you like it. What I noticed about it was that. <laughs> it didn't work? Uh, well, what I noticed is not that it didn't work. I realized that I complained a lot more than I realized.
1: Right. I read that too. <laughs> <laughs> is it, this, this, How much were you complaining a day when you started that I strategy?
2: I don't know if there's a number for it, but I just found I would walk into a room and I'd be complaining. I'd see my wife and, oh, how are you doing? Well, you know, this thing was a bit of a drag. That meeting took longer than I thought. And I'm like, why are you saying this? It's not even how you feel about your life. There's so many good things happening. But for some reason, I was in a habit of just starting with a complaint. You see your kids. There's always something to complain about. Well, why are you on that? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you cleared this thing up? There's an endless variety of complaints. And, and what I noticed was that the more I complained, the more there was to complain about. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I introduced this new habit, what I was surprised by is how fast the state changed. Because you can't be grateful and complaining in the same moment. You can't be fearful and grateful in the same, mo- same moment. You can't be angry and grateful in the same moment. I mean, it is a it is a dynamic, powerful, catalytic thing. It's not just it was, for too long we think of gratitude as being like, well, that's a nice, mindful man. Right. Be mindful and grateful over uh-huh. there. But when you've got to the real stuff, that's not the real stuff. Gratitude is the real stuff. This is the way to be able to accelerate success in any area of your life, and it's instantly effective. So I found that as soon as I would say I was grateful, I could see people's eyes light up, just even my kids, my wife, just it just brought a more positive feeling. So then we carry on with our kids, and I'm like, okay, my son Jack one time, I'm like, Uh he complained, and I'm like, okay, give me three things you're thankful for. He says this, I am so thankful that my dad wants to play this dumb game after I say something I'm complaining about, right? Says it just like that. We all laugh. It works even though he did it with the the worst attitude (laughs) ever. And by the time he's doing two and three, he's laughing and he's saying stuff and it didn't matter. Gratitude is that powerful. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like the fastest way to get ourselves back into an effortless state. Uh, and, 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 And I learned about it first in the extremity of, uh, of, of, you know, a family crisis. Mm. I found that this thing would help even in the direst of circumstances. Really? Yeah.
1: How do we train our minds and our body to be motivated towards a goal and not stay lazy? Yeah. Uh,
4: well, at first it's know thyself because we mm. all, we're all different. And so one of the attributes I talk about in the book is discipline and what I had to do with discipline was um, actively separate discipline from self-discipline
1: what's and, the difference
4: okay well the difference is that self-discipline is internally focused okay self-discipline is about is about managing oneself and it does it has very little to do with external requirements right so so you or i can decide to get in shape for example and we can change our diet we can work out every day the external environment uh doesn't have a lot of say in that you know in, in us in us achieving that accomplishment so self-discipline is about is about managing the internal uh discipline the way I, I talk about it in the book is about achieving that long-term goal. This is the, these are those long-term goals that are going to take a, a while to achieve, and the, the external world has a say. So, getting that promotion, writing that book, becoming the famous singer, becoming Navy Seal, right? The external world has mm-hmm. starting a podcast, right? The external world has a say in whether or not you do that, and that's and the discipline that is required to move through those wick those wickets takes adaptability, it takes flexibility, it takes the ability to not get seduced by the highs. The successes and not get crushed by the failures and and continue to move towards that goal. And what I found was because I'm a I'm a very unself-disciplined person. I don't really? have a lot, right? Um, and so what I so I, I had to separate this because I've, I've been able to achieve a lot of goals in my life. It's like, well, what's the difference? Uh, well, the difference is um, if you are overly <laughs> so so those with very high self-discipline sometimes this is not exclusive, but sometimes have trouble. Achieving long-term goals because because the achievement of long-term goals often takes uh, an ability and a, and, an, uh, and by necessity to march into the unknown into uncertainty Which is going to throw you off routine and throw you out of certainty the self disciplined person the very self disciplined likes routine likes certainty, right? That's how it, it's structure. I mean, that's what it is yeah. um, And so and so moving towards a goal like that takes oftentimes uh, being able to adapt out of structure, you know and say well, I I can't do that. Like I'm normal, I'd have to just go in, I have to go in unknowing, right? Now, the the best, the, the most successful people are the, those who have both self-discipline and discipline, right? Um, in terms of staying motivated a goal, the way I would do it by knowing myself is I would, I would, uh, understanding I'm not a very self-disciplined person, I would simply try to chunk a goal into smaller pieces, right? Mm-hmm. So. If I want to, if I want to lose weight, you know, then I, I can say, well, that's why cheat days are actually good for me, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I can, I can, I can say, okay, I'm going to take this piece of it and, and move. So I I, 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 chunk my reward system in a different way. But I think, um, I think the way, the way one stays motivated towards a goal is highly subjective. But it, it would, in my, uh, kind of through my thought process and my experience, involve a an active or one to actively. Um, Map out a reward system that helps someone move sort of, through that.
1: Sort of creating a reward system first for yeah. the for the goal in order to help you stay motivated. So depending not on say, yeah,
4: depending on your depending on your how you show up. Not just right? yeah.
1: say like, okay, I'm gonna my goal is to achieve this thing. And it's gonna take me three years to accomplish it. Right. And that's the only reward I'm going to get in that's those right. three years. But how can I reward myself every day for an action I take, every month yeah. for a milestone, every year for yeah. getting closer? So focusing on the reward system. For yeah,
4: ourselves. and that, and this is this is this is neurobiological mm-hmm. because dopamine, the neurotransmitter, is you get you get hits of dopamine when you as a reward when you achieve things. Yeah. You know, there's many ways you get dopamine but one of the ways is when you achieve things so if you're able to effectively create a reward system that means something to you Mm -hmm. it can't be it can't be kind of inert right so so if i want to run if i want to run marathon and i haven't and i can barely run to the to my mailbox right um (laughs) You know, then maybe you know buying some running shoes and putting them on one morning is enough of a reward system to get a dopamine hit. Yeah. As someone who runs, you know, somewhat frequently, and I, you probably uh, identify with this. Uh, just putting on our shoes one morning is probably not going to give us that dopamine hit. We got to we got to extend that mm-hmm. we got to extend that task a little bit so that you've that, already
1: accomplished a lot of something. So that, you yeah. have to push beyond. You it have to a push
4: bit. beyond it to get that that reward system. So it becomes subjective.
1: What would you say? Twenty years as a Navy SEAL at different levels. Uh, and you were deployed how many different times? Are you allowed to talk about that?
4: Well, you know, I mean, 13 and some change, yeah. so Deployments between,
1: what, six months and over a year?
4: Yeah, I never did year long, but anywhere between you know, three months to six months usually. Um,
1: this is Iraq and I- Afghanistan? For the most part, yeah. And other places maybe you're not allowed to talk about. No. What would you say of that 20-year experience was the most challenging experience for you? Was it something within... Uh, a mission? Was it learning how to develop as a leader? Was it having a relationship with your wife during that time? What was the most challenging point yeah. for you? Yeah. The most challenging
4: thing, ironically, wasn't the job because you, because we were all so prepared for the job and you mm. were around, we were around just the best people in the world. Um, so, so the trust and the camaraderie was to this day, you know, I, I look back on it very fondly, right? Wow. Um, so the, not the
1: day-to-day job. I no, mean, even yeah. just like the, the, the missions you went out on, yeah,
4: that wasn't that wasn't challenging. Uh, I think I think if I were to if I were to say, you know, the first and foremost was probably having to leave the family. When you have to say goodbye to your family um, for a stint, you know, mm. whether it's three months or six months or some some folks are deploying for a year, right? Um, that is a rough deal that not many people can can capture. Not many people with families can capture that when you have to say goodbye to your kids. And your wife for that, you know, you go, okay. Well, see you in however. And then, and then to add on to that, understanding their stress, or at least my kids were a little bit smaller, but understanding my wife's stress, knowing that I was going someplace and she, it Check was dangerous. Yeah. Well, data. I mean, luckily with today's technology, contact was fairly easy. But we found was you know, again, ironically, we found that that um, daily contact was never a good idea because what happens is you establish a routine. You get comfortable. You're... You get comfortable. So, so something happens. I'm, I'm working. I'm, out, I'm overseas in something. I'm, I'm. I have a mission that goes long or whatever, and I don't get to call her that day. Well, suddenly she's worried, you know. And it also makes time actually seem slower. Interesting. So, yeah. So we we decided we were only going to talk usually once a week. My son, who had a real trouble, I mean, he was young. I mean, he was you know he he was born in 05. Um, so he was he was, by the time he was two, he was he was having trouble with me deploying. Um, and. And every time I went, it was rough on him. And we actually, for him, we actually almost had to. Well, we literally had to de- just decide not to. I was not, I was not going to talk to him on the phone. It was too hard for him. He had to basically kind of forget me.
1: Oh my you gosh! Know, um, so he had to compartmentalize as a yeah. child. Yeah. In order to, we had to help him compartmentalize, survive. You know? Yeah. And not so, go depressed or yeah. be stressed, because that's one of the attributes you talk about is compartmentalization. Yeah. How do you do that if you're an emotional human being that's you have these deep connections to your family and friends. How do you just detach in a sense yeah. and become more machine-like <laughs> for a period of time yeah. and then allow yourself to feel deeply in other moments?
4: Well, it never goes away. And I think the attributes, the, the, the way I talk about compartmentalization and the attribute is more uh, in, is more kind of surrounded by the way our brain functions and processes information versus I'm going to block something out so I don't have to think about it. However, um, I think most team guys seals spec ops guys have a, a very high ability to compartmentalize away from things you know block out things that are mm-hmm. that are painful and I know that about me um, and I know that about my my uh, my buddies um, because you have to because war sucks you know yeah. and, and at the end of the day the mission has to be accomplished you know so if something gnarly happens on a mission um, you can't sit there th- these these movies that show these extended scenes of people, you know, mourning when when their buddy goes down or whatever, like, you oh don't my have, god, yeah, you it don't doesn't have happen. That. No, you don't have that time. You know, you you have to the the you have to win the gunfight, right? Because if you don't, then all of you won't make it home, right? right? So so you have to, and I think I think the training allows you to do that. The training is so intense and so um, kind of uh, so effective that it requires you to compartmentalize. You know, training teaches you to compartmentalize. You become you become very very good at it. Um, now that could be a detriment in a relationship. <laughs> so uh, I think those of us who were able to recognize that actively try not to do that with our families. Um, and so it becomes much more of a precision tool versus a, a frenetic thing that yeah. just it happens without us without us having control over it.
1: What was the, the moment that was the scariest for you when you were deployed? Where you thought like, um, I may not make it. Um, or our team may not make it. Or this is a really bad. I guess you're training for bad situations all the time. Yeah, but was true. there ever a moment you were like, I don't know if we're going to get out of this?
4: No. I was. I was fortunate not to have that moment. I, I say see, that. I, I say that with immense gratitude because I know there's a lot of friends of mine who didn't have that. That uh, can't say that they had those moments where they, you know, they said that. But, but no, I I was fortunate enough to be um, always in a position, um, and my team was always in a position that we had. Prepared, planned, and executed in a way that was highly effective, so that when things went wrong, because things always go sideways, um, we had complete, you know, or uh, near complete control, or we we understood the pathways we needed to 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 go throughout. Of but, but I say that also, you know, this is this comes back to compartmentalization. You know, um, one of the things that you have to be able to do when when shit goes sideways is to not focus on that thought you just brought up, right? The focus is not. Oh my God! I don't think I'm going to get out of this. The Focus is how do I get out of this? But the, so the mental acuity attributes, which are situation awareness, um, uh, compartmentalization, task switching, and then learnability. Right. Um, so that's how information is coming in, how we're processing it and prioritizing, how we're switching between the necessary tasks, and then how we're learning from our from our from from our decisions. Right. So I talk about the parachute malfunction in in the context of that. Um, but ultimately, comes to to even be able to do that in the first place, it requires a a, a forebrain dominance in the sense that you're not letting your autonomic system take over into mm. a fight flight response, and you're able to think through stress, challenge, and, and, and uncertainty in the, in the sense of say, okay, what what can I control right now? And this is where trust in your teammates mm. comes in because now I have a team. I mean, I I can say this with with. Um, With great pride and gratitude, I I can remember literally walking in areas, you know, when we were overseas, and thinking, "Man, this is a this is a bad area. Right? This is sketchy." And having complete and utter faith, right? Because I just I was around because I was with my teammates, right? I was around people who just I trusted. I knew that if something went went wrong, we'd we'd be able to handle it, you know. And so I think that's that's a necessity when you do this type of type of stuff.
1: When you're going out on a mission what's the process like of preparing for that mission are you planning more for all the things that could go wrong and how to get out of that situation or is it planning for here's exactly how we would like it to go right yeah but let's also have a exit plan or a plan for yeah. when things go wrong what do you, how it's, do you it's the latter
4: it's 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 you plan the mission as you'd like it to go um, and then you uh, inside of that planning you put together you build contingencies within each. Uh, within each factor. So
1: when right? this doesn't go as planned, right. so, what are the three ways to get yeah,
4: out? Yeah, so so you know, just like I mean, just like any um, uh, athlete would understand, or so so a quarterback coming out of a snap would say, well, I have two or three or four plays I can fall mm-hmm. back on depending on how this line shapes up, right? Um, you have the same thing, you know. I you know, this is where experience matters. You do, you do it over and over again. It's okay. Well, during as we're coming in on insertion, you know, we, there's, there's a few things that could go wrong. So if this, then that, if this, then that. And you kind of do that throughout a phase, throughout the phase planning. Um, but then there's what we call the 80-20 rule. And that is you, you get to 80% of certainty and then you recognize that 20% is just out of your control. And that's where confidence comes. You say, hey, if something happens outside that 20%, we will, we will figure it out. Figure it out because we're not going to figure out everything. And, and it's, you know, Murphy's law will dictate that something happens that we haven't thought of. Uh, so, you, uh, so you prepare yourself to deal with uncertainty.
1: How do you train your mind to deal with chaos in the moment so that you don't freak out and freeze up, but you actually turn on a level of focus and attention towards achieving that goal?
4: Yeah, the, uh, I, well, so I think we're predisposed, uh, each one of us, to what uh, what I've called, like, Huberman, Huberman and I both have called this, is the autonomic set point. You know, at what point do we start flipping into an autonomic into an autonomic response, into fight flight, where our, where our system starts, you know, taking over and our forebrain starts coming offline? If we were, if you and I use boiling point as the average, most of us might be average. There are those who uh, who start really freaking out at like 190. You know, so 212 is the average. At 190 degrees, they're starting to freak out. Right. There are people who take it takes till like 230 to boil. To yeah. boil, right? I think that the Guys who make it through that training are predisposed to have a higher set point, first of all. Uh, In other words, we tend to, when bad things start to happen, we tend to slow down and start thinking through it um, versus get all hyped up. It's funny, it's funny, you know, uh, I live in a neighborhood, and and in my neighborhood, there's four other Navy SEALs in the neighborhood. There's, you know, one across the street, one down the road.
1: Must be nice. Well, it is nice, you know. A because
4: they're great dudes and it's great. They're great neighbors. But I remember my wife once saying, you know, she said, "Hey, I'm so glad these guys are here and I, in the neighborhood." And I was like, "Why?" So she said, "Because if something went wrong, I know I could go to them and they'd act like you act." Uh. And I said, "Well, tell me." I said, "Because because if something happens, they would immediately calm down and they'd start working the problem, right?" And so so I think there's there I think we show up predisposed. Mm. Um, Training to it is is difficult, you know, um, and I I think so. So, are actually working on some stuff, some stuff to help train, have to help teach people to to do that. Uh, but it comes down to understanding your own neurology, and it comes down to understanding that you know, um, here's how you have to think through situations under stress, and then it's going to be about putting yourself into deliberate stress to practice that. You can't practice this type of thinking if you're not in stress. You right? need so to put yourself. You, you in need that. to put yourself in that. What
1: are some things know? civilians could do to? Practice stressful moments on a daily basis where it doesn't hurt them, but yeah. it's actually preparing them. I talk about Every day, I think you should be experiencing some type of pain something that's uncomfortable, right seeking discomfort Yes, uh, whether it be through a 10-minute workout whether it be through a longer run It doesn't matter what it is mm-hmm. an uncomfortable conversation. Yes. We should be doing this every day in a in a, a structured environment. Yeah. that allows us to grow. Yes, what do you think are some ways we could do this that's not putting us in harm's way or physically hurting ourselves?
4: Yeah, I, I can't answer that because it's so subjective. Mm. I can give some ideas, and you just gave some. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> some people are are very social people, so starting a conversation with a stranger is Easy. A piece of cake, right? Yeah. For me, that would be hard, right? Starting a conversation with a stranger would be hard. So that might be something I do. Uh, giving a presentation, public speaking for people is tough. So uh, so volunteering to give that presentation is a great way for a lot of people because you know you know they th- that 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 makes them anxious you know so working out for some is like for some people they've developed a system where that that pain point of working out is something they highly enjoy right Right. so so they're not not practicing it you know so um so it so someone should should look at their own makeup and ask themselves what what fright well in fear again it doesn't have to go all the way to fear fear is interesting because it's a it's actually a combination of two things it's a combination of uncertainty and anxiety you can have each one of those and not have fear, right? So if you are anxious but not uncertain, that would be. I have to give this presentation on Monday. I hope it's good. I'm nervous about it, right? That's you know, but but there's nothing uncertain about it. It's Monday. It's at two o'clock. I know what I'm going to do. I'm just I'm nervous about it. Right. Okay? Um, uncertainty without anxiety. Well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve. Okay, I mean, so uh, but it's when you combine the two that you start to generate fear. Well, um, the the idea is if you have fear, if you have uncertainty plus anxiety, and it start to, to the manifest fear, the key is to understanding which of those two factors can you buy down. Okay, anxiety buy, buy down, buy down, which means uh, decrease. Um, anxiety can be decreased internally. It's an internal response, right? So things like uh, some of the tools Huberman talks about, visual tools, breathing tools, so you can begin to you can begin to shift your physiology out of your sympathetic into your parasympathetic, mm-hmm. come off of the autonomic response uh, system, right? So that's so that's how you can start, you know, kind of buying down on uh, uh, anxiety. Uncertainty is largely external, okay? Mm. That means something around you, outside of you, you don't understand, there's unknown. Um, the way, the best way to do that and the way we do it uh, in, the, in Spec Ops is we, we control what we can control. So some, some people have referred to it kind of control your three-foot world, right? But it doesn't have to extend, it's not a, it's not a three-foot thing. It's, it's what in this moment can I control? And then take control of that, mm. right? Because then you are grabbing onto certainty you're taking what is uncertain, you're grabbing onto something certain. As soon as you've controlled that, as soon as you move through that, then you have to make another decision. What's, what's the next thing? This is basically kind of stepping through, right? Stepping through this challenge, right? So, uh, so you, can start to, you can start to practice um, coming off of fear or moving through fear by kind of understanding both of those, those, uh, those pieces.
1: What do you think is the greatest lesson you learned throughout the 20 years for yourself that has helped you not only during that, but also after being uh, with the seals.
4: I think it's. I think it's. It's not fearing the unknown. It's the. It's the idea mm. that I, I. You know, when you go through something like that, you understand that. Hey, I can pretty much do whatever I'd like to do, um, and I know that even though even though I don't know how I'm going to do it, I know I can figure it out. If there's enough interest, if there's enough, enough passion, right? You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not interested in becoming a pro football player. You know. Right. So. So that's. You know. That's off my list, right? But I was interested in writing a book, and that was a whole new process for me. You know, when I start when I left the Navy, I started public speaking. I did not like public speaking yeah. <laughs> at all, right? I did not like it, but I knew it was a, it was a it was an edge that I wanted to conquer. You know, and say, okay, well, let me work through the things to to conquer this edge. Kind of like your philosophy. I think it's a really, it's it's not only a deep one, but it's profound mm. because because if we are consistently moving, deciding what our edges are, moving towards our edge, and then getting there. Um, then we are we are growing, you know, because guess what we're doing at that point? We're looking for the next edge, you know, and that's the growth process. is continuing to move to our edges and and then finding the next edge.
1: I mean, you say you don't like public speaking, but don't you have to speak to your teams and guys? Yeah, but that's not
4: public. Time. That's like right. you know, that's that's the guys. So that's it's the, not it's different. not the same. It's different. Yeah, it's different. There's a lot more, you know, when you're, you know, because you're and and when you're in the in the military, there's no there's no expectation of. Of you know, kind of great articulation or or humor or you know just, or what's, what's effective, like, yeah, it's what's like, hey, effective. Here's, get it here's the word, <laughs> that's <what we laughs> Go. There, right? And that's what's appreciated too. There's like no one wants you to sit there and pontificate. It's like, hey guys, this is this is what's going on. Um, so there's there's a there's a directness that's appreciated and and um, and required. You know, so but that's not you know, public speaking. What do you think was
1: the hardest lesson you had to learn through your 20 years? Something that you were struggling with or challenged with, or you kept repeating until you finally learning the lesson.
4: Yeah, I think the hardest lessons, the hardest lesson, maybe not one, the hardest lessons were just around leadership. What it takes, what leadership take, what what it takes to be a leader? Because again, hmm. um, being a leader and being in charge are often conflated. They're not the same thing, okay?
1: What's the difference?
4: Well, anybody could be in charge. I as an officer, you know, in the in the military, I was pr- pretty much in charge of something all the time. It didn't didn't make me a leader. You you don't get to call yourself a leader. It's like calling yourself funny or calling yourself handsome, okay? Someone else else makes that decision. You can't can't designate yourself that way. Um, Someone else decides whether or not you are a leader, okay? And that's done through the way you behave in that position. So if you're in charge and you're behaving in a way that causes someone to make a decision, okay, this is the person I would lead. I mean, if if we think about the leaders in our lives, the people who we consider leaders in our lives, it's not because they were just in charge of us. In fact, we could probably think of people who we would follow uh into hell and back and they're they have they have no place in the hierarchy of our, of our lives right they are just someone who just they behaved that way in a, in a in a way that's made us kind of in in endeared in, in to them so so the attributes i talk about in the book in terms of leadership attributes are all attributes that actually um, cause behaviors that typically cause people to look at others as leaders
1: What are the behaviors that most human beings admire the most that we want to follow that person or be inspired to be led by something that they're sharing or involved in, a community, a movement, whatever it may be. What are the three or four main behaviors that they have and we should be developing if we want to be better leaders?
4: Yeah, well, I talk about five in the book in terms of the adverts. The first is empathy, okay? And again, I, I would say this, there's not an exclusivity in terms of what someone will decide. Uh, because there are people who will subjective, look at, right it's a subjective thing. You know, again, it's it's someone's choice as to whether or not they think so. Empathy is one. Um, selflessness uh, is another. And, and this is not just um, you know. So let's just back up here. Empathy, um, not just I know how you feel. I feel how you feel. Right. I can I can put myself into your shoes, and and I re, and that reflects in the way I, I communicate with you and I and I care about. It, it shows that you care about another human being. What, um, what
1: is the best way to to show that? I mean, give me an example, as opposed to saying, "I know how you feel." How do you feel? Empathize, showing you feel how they feel.
4: Well, first, deep listening, and so, so, uh, so we always, so listening to another person, but uh, but true, like deep, full on, like listening. Like I, I am hanging on every word, listening. Oftentimes, we listen to people, and we're two things. One, or, one of two things is happening. Either. We're thinking about what we're going to say next, right? Or we're thinking about how what that person is saying relates to our lives, and it's not from a malicious standpoint. It's it's really because we're trying to relate. So we're trying to say, okay, you're you're talking about football. I'm thinking, okay, wait a second, you know, did I play? I played football in eighth grade. Maybe I can talk about we'll that. We relate, right? yeah. yeah. But what I'm doing is I'm not listening to you anymore. You know, I'm making uh. what you're saying about me. You know, so um, so what what deep empathetic listening is? I'm I've. I have like a whiteboard in my mind, okay. And as I'm listening to you speak, if something pops onto the whiteboard, I erase it, <laughs> and I move on. I just keep on listening. You know, that is if you do, if you if you empathetically listen, like look into someone's eyes, attentive behavior, facing each other, you are going. They are going to feel cared for because you're exchanging. Now there's an exchange going on. There's serotonin being released. Uh, there's uh, mm. there's oxytocin being exchanged, or at least released, um, and all these uh, kind of these bonding chemicals, right? So so that type of listening shows someone you care about them. Empathy is a little bit tougher for some. Some yeah. people are just wired, we know, some people are wired to be, my wife is extraordinarily empathetic. I mean, she really feels other people. I mean, I am not. She's, <laughs> I've, had to, I've had to really try to develop empathy. It's something that
3: she's taught me. Information was the thing that stimulated thought, stimulated new ideas. And and as we learn new things, we make new connections in our brains. So. As we begin to add new stitches into that three-dimensional tapestry in our mind We're beginning to cause our mind to function in new ways But the key then is to apply it to personalize it to do something with it And and ten years ago When I went got in front of an audience and talked about the application Nobody wanted to step outside that philosophical theoretical intellectual realm, right? Because when doing something means you're gonna have to change something about yourself. Yeah, you're gonna get uncomfortable, right? and um <clears throat> I think we're in an age of information and in an age of information ignorance is a choice and because of technology we have access to so much content and information creates awareness and awareness is consciousness and you can't have consciousness without energy they they work together so there's an energetic change I think that's taking place in the world right now where people are so informed that old models, old paradigms, are beginning to break down. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the medical model, or the religious model, the educational model, journalism, uh, the, the economy, you know, uh, politics—it's all beginning to uh, come to the surface because something else has to come out. And. And I think that one of the things that uh, people are realizing is that you don't have to be a Buddhist monk to do this or yeah. uh, a nun with 40 years of devotion. You just gotta understand the formula. And just like any skill or anything you learn, you gotta go from thinking to doing to being. You gotta take knowledge, you, you create the experience, and if you keep doing it over and over again, you start getting a skill or you start getting wise about how to do it. And you, you know that you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Well. In the last 10 years, we have assembled a scientific team. And let's see if you can really make significant brain changes. I I don't want those changes to just be in your mind. I want them to be in your brain. I want to be able to see before and after pictures to Mm -hmm. say, that person has a significant change after a traumatic brain injury, or anxiety, or depression, or a cyclic mood disorder, or A stroke we want to see that there's been significant change at the same time let's measure your brain in real time and let's look to see what that transformation process looks like Mm. and in the discovery lewis of that process we gained so much knowledge about what that transformational process looks like in other words i can tell you without a doubt that if you're analyzing your life right now within some disturbing emotion that 100% of the time you're going to make your brain worse. If you Be- think about your life. If you're stuck in an emotion, like oh, you're frustrated, yeah, you're yeah. angry, you're fearful, resentful, resentful and you're thinking within that emotional state. In other words, mm-hmm. you can't think greater than how you feel. That means then you were thinking in the past because those emotions are a record or residue of the past. So we see people in the, in the process of change that are analyzing and uh, uh, in in duality or polarity that kind of drives the brain f- Into higher states of arousal mm. and and further away from true change. Mm. So We did an, uh, we've done thousands and thousands and thousands of brain scans and and we now know that there's a formula to create Greater brain coherence greater brain efficiency to make your brain work better And when mm. your brain works better you work better at the same time it requires a clear intention and an elevated emotion to begin to change your energy and to change your life. And nobody changes until they change their energy, right? right? So then how do you get a person out of resentment, frustration into joy and freedom? If why would they feel grateful or joyful or free if the experience hasn't happened? So most mm-hmm. people are spending the majority of their life waiting for something out there to take away their emptiness or pain or the resentment in here. Well. If they're they're waiting their whole life in separation or lack then and and we create reality then the lack is Driving certain thoughts which is creating more separation and more lack So teaching people then to begin to condition their body emotionally before the evidence takes place in their life Is breaking a significant habit, right? So instead of living by cause and effect now We're beginning to cause an effect. So the moment you start feeling whole and grateful we now know your healing will begin at that moment. Yes. The moment you start feeling um, worthy and abundant, your wealth is coming. You know, you're generating a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of wealth. and so. How we, does
1: someone feel worthy, though, if they've always been told they're not worth it?
3: Yeah, well, so let or, me... Fi- or that's the
1: story they tell yeah, themselves. Yeah. Like, I'm not worth it because yeah. she didn't say yes when I asked her on a date. Right because he broke up with me, because I got yeah. fired, because my parents left me, how, do they, how am I worth it when okay. there's so much evidence or story right. around a negative well, thing?
3: let's stop telling the story of your past and let's start telling the story of your future. And, and people who aren't defined by a vision of the future for the most part are left with memories of the past. The, oh. Your brain is a record of the past. It's an artifact of everything you've learned and experienced in this moment. So most people wake up in the morning and They start thinking about their problems, and those problems are memories that are tattooed in the brain that are associated with certain people and things at certain times and places. So the moment the person wakes up, clean slate, they start thinking about the problems they're thinking in the past. If you believe your thoughts have something to do with your destiny, well, it's a possibility that your past is going to be your future. Mm. Every one of those problems has an emotion associated with it. So then the moment you start recalling the problem, you start feeling unhappy, Now your body's in the past because thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And how Mm -hmm. you think and how you feel creates a state of being. So people reaffirm their identity based on the past, right? And it turns out that the redundancy of doing that, conditioning only requires, requires an image and an emotion. And most people are unconsciously conditioning their body into the familiar past, into the known. So now if you're in the familiar past and in the known... You're gonna crave the predictable future, right? right? That's the known as well. And there's only one place where the unknown exists and that's the eternal present moment. That's Mm. the sweet spot of the generous present moment. So you gotta gotta labor to get that person beyond the emotions that keep them tacked or anchored to the past. And yes, it takes an effort to do that. But if you keep working with the formula, you'll reach that elegant moment where there's a liberation of energy. Mm. And now your body as the unconscious mind the objective mind is not believing it's living in the same past experience 24 hours a day because you're liberating the body from that emotional state So you ask the person why are you so unhappy? Why are you so frustrated? Why are you so resentful the moment you ask that their brain is going to associate that emotion to a past event
1: to a memory to a experience. memory? Yeah.
3: That's because they have nothing to look forward to in their future so if you're not being defined by a vision of the future It just means to me that you're more in love with your past Mm. than you are with the future. So how do you teach people to believe in a future that they can't see or experience with their senses yet, but they've thought about enough times in their mind that their brain has literally changed to look like the event has already occurred? The latest research in neuroscience says that's absolutely possible. Mm. We know that. And how do you teach a person to select a new possibility in their future? and begin to emotionally embrace that future before it's made manifest to such a degree that their body as their unconscious mind is believing it's living in that future reality in the present moment and they're signaling new genes in new ways ahead of the environment now to their body begins to change to look like the event has already occurred we've proven that that's possible
1: now think about this so the more you think about your desired future the joy the gratitude the uh, the feelings you want to have that are more positive, the more you think about it as, it's, as a future thing happening, the more your body shifts now. Exactly. So, your body is believing it's living in that future
3: reality now. in the present moment. Now, think about this. From some condition in your life, the more altered you feel inside of you, the more you narrow your focus on the cause and the brain freezes an image and takes a snapshot. And that memory now is embossed in the brain. It's branded in there. So then people think neurologically within the circuits of those past experiences and they feel chemically within the boundaries of those emotions. And the stronger the betrayal, the stronger the trauma, the more the body's living in the past, right? Right, So then, so how do you reverse that? So now, if you truly got passionate about a future, we've all done this. You get a wild idea in your mind and Uh you start holding on to that vision and you're preoccupied with it All of a sudden, the thought in your mind becomes the experience, and you start feeling the the energy of the future. Now, the stronger the emotion you feel from that vision, the more you're gonna pay attention to the picture in your mind, and now you're remembering your future. And vice versa, the stronger you pay attention to the feeling of the past pain, you're gonna create the pain in this moment. Exactly. So then, so it requires a coherent brain, Mm -hmm. and we now know that there's a formula for that, and we've got beautiful research to show that people can do it, they just have to practice. And it requires a coherent heart, because resentment, frustration, impatience creates a very incoherent (laughs) heart. And when that heart becomes incoherent, you stop trusting yourself. There's no energy there, you You stop trusting in your future. So then, if there's physical evidence in your brain and body, physical evidence to look like the event has already occurred, it's quite possible you'll be thinking neurologically within the circuits of your future and you'll begin to feel chemically within the boundaries of that emotion of your future. Mm-hmm. And how you think and how you feel is your state of being. And now your state of being is living in the future instead of the past. Now, the moment you disconnect from the emotion of your future, because of traffic or some coworker or your ex or whatever people come up with, now you're back to the energy of your past. Oh. And now you're gonna start looking for it, analyzing why hasn't it happened? Well. If you're feeling the emotion of your future, why would you look for it? Because you would feel like it already happened, and that mm. is the place where the magic happens. So then, you can't just do this, get up, and then return back to your old state of being. You gotta maintain that modified state of mind. How do you maintain it that's when, what, when, when life happens? Well, let me finish. If I it, punch you in the
1: face right now,
3: how do you maintain <laughs> Well, of course, of course. I mean, we all take blows in our lives, yeah. and, and we all react emotionally, but the question is, how long are you gonna react? Right, right. Was- so then if you can't mediate and regulate your emotional mm-hmm. reactions, and those emotions linger for days, that's a mood. Years for some people. Mood, and then a months, temperament, years, personality trait. So then the person's personality is literally based on the past. But Crazy. they don't know that because they're doing it over and over again. It becomes a subconscious program. So now, if it requires a coherent brain and a coherent heart, then we have to train people Uh how to self-regulate. So we've done thousands and thousands of measurements. We've partnered with the HeartMath Institute to teach people how to create and sustain heart coherence. How do we do it? Well,
1: Besides going to your workshop, what's a simplified version? I'm sure it takes more time than...
3: Well, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It just requires getting still, closing your eyes, putting your attention on your heart, changing your breath, so that you move into the present moment. And when you slow your breathing down, you slow your brainwaves down. When you slow your brainwaves down, now you're accessing your autonomic nervous system. So then you train a person how to open their heart and feel an elevated emotion, and it takes a little practice. And just like a flower that that takes time to bloom, Mm -hmm. it -hmm. takes a little bit of time. But if Mm -hmm. you work in trading the resentment, the frustration or the impatience for gratitude, appreciation, and thankfulness, And you keep at it there'll come a moment where that system switches on and now you're feeling grateful for no reason at all That's that's not a bad (laughs) thing because gratitude the emotional signature of gratitude means Something's happening to you Something has happened to you. You're receiving something or you just receive something So your body then when you're feeling gratitude is in the perfect state of receiving Mm -hmm. so then that means then You'll accept, believe, and surrender to the thoughts equal to the emotional state of gratitude. Mm-hmm. If you're living in resentment, you're living in fear, you're living in in impatience. You could say, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, I'm wealthy, I'm with all you want, and that thought's gonna stop right at the brainstem and never make its way to the body because the body is not
1: feeling or because why? Because you're
3: feeling resentment. Uh-huh. And that thought isn't that thought is not consistent with the emotion of resentment. Resentment has a different set of thoughts, right? In other words, once you start opening your heart, it begins to move into coherence. It begins to produce a measurable magnetic field up to 3 meters wide. Now that's frequency, that's energy. And all that energy, that frequency carries information, carries an intent. So then when you're feeling gratitude and your heart is open, you're broadcasting energy into the field. Mm-hmm. A now, frequency. a yeah. frequency, you lay the intent of the thought of your health or your wealth, that frequency can carry the thought of your wealth. It can mm. carry the thought of your health. If you're suffering, you can't, the suffering does not carry, that energy does not carry the thought of your wealth. It carries a different set of thoughts. So then, so then we're teaching people how to self-regulate, because if you're gonna believe in that future that you're imagining with all of your heart, it better be open and activated and you better know how to self-regulate and you have to know the moment you disconnect from the energy of your future because of some circumstance in your life and you lose that feeling, if you're practicing it on a daily basis with your eyes closed, then the next level is to be able to open your eyes and do it right in the moment Mm. and be able to self-regulate and change the, the frustration from some experience in your life back to the energy of your future. Now, that requires great awareness and great effort. But if you have a community of people that are practicing this on a daily basis, and they're connected to their future, because that's where their mind is, mm-hmm. um, they begin to want the future more than the emotions the of the past. So we've done enough measurements now, Lewis, to know that we can teach people how to do that. And we have evidence that people can sustain it for 45 minutes to an hour. It's a skill now. They know that they know how to do it. So now they have brain coherence and heart coherence. Well, once the heart begins to become orderly and coherent, it acts as an amplifier and it drives Mm. energy to the brain. So now the brain is getting more energy once the heart is open, and then you're thinking a different set of thoughts. And those thoughts produce different chemicals for you to feel more of that. And here comes, Nitric oxide from oxytocin, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden your heart literally starts to swell.
0: take your business further with a smart and flexible american express business gold card you can earn four times points on your
4: top two eligible spending categories every month like transit u.s restaurants and
0: gas stations that's the powerful backing of american express Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash card. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom. Crop out. Yada yada. And bye.